And so this morning, we begin in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. It's in the final act of Shakespeare's play that Lady Macbeth utters her famous out damn spot, out I say. Having conspired with her husband to murder Scotland's king, she cannot wash the spot from her hands. It won't wash off because it isn't blood as she thinks. It's guilt. Earlier in the play, when Macbeth had Duncan's actual blood on his hands, she calmly told him to wash it off. But the guilt had already taken him. And he told her there wasn't enough water in all the oceans to make his hands clean. You can wash them. The blood will come off. But the guilt will not be washed off so easily. We all know what it is to be guilty. And like Lady Macbeth, to try to live in denial of that guilt. Someone points out our mistake and we get angry. We fight tooth and nail to be right as though we're terrified by the alternative. We point fingers and blame others because we've got to justify ourselves. 
these visceral reactions reveal the fear we have of our guilt being exposed. Deep down, we know we're not right. We know we're not righteous. And we believe it cannot be found out. We desperately search for someone else to blame. It's often why we snap at our loved ones. We cannot bear the thought that we are guilty and there's nothing we can do about it. And when that feeling becomes overwhelming, when we can no longer bear the weight of our own guilt, the lashing out can become extreme. We look for pain we can inflict on others. It's why Cain killed Abel. It's why a woman shoots up a Christian school. We feel desperately that someone else must be to blame for this crushing sense of guilt. Abel, Lady Macbeth, and Audrey Hale are extreme cases. But I hope you see the same problem exists within every human heart. Paul wrote to the Romans, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or to put it another way, out, damn spot. Macbeth, pleads with the doctor for some kind of medicine that could cure his wife of her torment. He says there must be something the doctor can do for her. But the doctor knows better. There is nothing he can do for her guilt. And he gives the answer that many today give and that many try to use. He says of Lady Macbeth, the patient must minister to himself. And try we do. We turn to money, to sex, to work, to accolades, to drugs and alcohol, to status. We'll try anything we can get our hands or our minds on to relieve the guilt. These self-medications may offer some topical relief, but we have a deeper problem. In the end, they can hardly even dull the pain because they cannot change the facts. We are guilty before God. And there is nothing we can do about it. Isaiah's servant songs are about how God will do something about it. They're about how God will deal with the guilt of his rebellious people. We have broken the covenant in our flesh. Nothing good dwells in us. Even his good promises will do us no good if they depend on our faithfulness. Who will deliver us from this body of death? One Old Testament scholar calls this fourth servant song the Mount Everest of prophecy. It's the centerpiece of Isaiah's comfort oracles. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. It's the centerpiece of the gospel itself. 
That's why this chapter, these 15 verses are quoted by the New Testament more than any other in the Old Testament. When Paul asked, who will deliver me from this body of death? He answered, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isaiah's five stanzas here give the exact same answer because it's God's answer. He will deliver us and he will deliver us through the work of his son. Now for these five stanzas, these five verses of the song, there are as many different headings and outlines for them as there are commentaries on Isaiah. Many are excellent, but this morning I'll use those of the late Dr. Warren Wearsby of Chicago's Moody Church. Each of the five is three verses in your Bible about the servant, and Wearsby uses five S adjectives. Verses 13 to 15, shocking. Verses 1 to 3, sorrowing. Verses 4 to 6, smitten. Verses 7 to 9, silent. And 10 to 12, satisfied. Shocking, sorrowing, smitten, silent, and satisfied. He chose the word shocking for the first stanza, no doubt for the alliteration. He's more clever than me. The ESV translates that word in verse 14, astonished. It was not power or worldly impressiveness that shocked those who encountered Jesus. Quite the opposite. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. To faithless eyes, his exaltation The cross makes no sense. It's the contrast between Palm Sunday and and, uh, uh, his death on Friday. What the world perceives as his glory, this triumphal entry, to what is his actual glory, his raising up on a cross. It wasn't only his appearance, though, that shocked them. It was also his action that he would go to the cross. Jesus knew what was required of him. It says, my servant shall act wisely. I guess when someone lives with perfect, unrestrained devotion to God, it catches everyone else off guard. His message was equally shocking. To earthly ears, his message is incomprehensible. This can't be how you deliver people from bondage. This can't be the message of a king. Sometimes he doesn't even sound like a savior. Our astonishment, and it's not the good kind, is why we turn to those other medicines for our guilt. Astonishment is why they called out for Barabbas. Given his appearance and the content of his ministry, putting faith in Jesus didn't seem like it was going to work. You can see in many modern ministries that even the church struggles to believe this. Fearing that we cannot say what Jesus said, we water down the gospel and replace it with therapeutic feel-goodism. His law is too offensive. Too inflammatory is his truth. And so we say, you just be you and God 
will adapt. Or in other kinds of churches, his grace is what causes the offense. This guilt isn't going to remove itself, so you've got to do the work. And since we're not very good at that, we'll lower God's standard of perfection enough so that people like us can get in just under the wire. But just barely, so you better keep working. Covenant of grace, we cannot be complicit in offering the world this kind of medicine. They're false gospels. We can't pretend that the blood will come out if they only wash their hands a bit longer and a bit harder. We have to point them to the servant because it's through him and only through him that God will deliver his people. That God is the one who does the deliverance is quite clear to Isaiah. Verses 1 through 3 begin with sorrow. The lament that so few believe this promise of salvation by faith. That so few will accept God's grace rather than resist. The servant looked like a root out of dry ground with no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In the first century and in the 21st, people dismiss Jesus rather than believe him. Another pastor observed, we need God's help to believe because the truth is we're more superficial than we realize. We look at the surface of things. We judge by appearances, and Jesus doesn't even try to be impressive at that level. Bethlehem and Nazareth are backwaters of a failed, now-occupied Jewish nation. Jesus comes as a baby in a manger and grows as the child of a simple carpenter. His brief stint as a teaching child prodigy was impressive, until word got around about what he was teaching. He was despised and rejected by men, and we esteemed him not. God has to do the work because when we see Jesus as he is, we're not impressed. Jesus isn't interested in the things that are most important to us. I saw one list that included wealth, social prestige, reputation, being served by others, pampering yourself, endless entertainment. He's not interested. And that's why he was rejected then. And he's rejected even now. If we're to be saved, if we're to be delivered from this body of death, God must act. On their own, our guilty hearts won't even receive the Messiah that he sent us. It's too much for this morning, but this passage brings up a great tragedy of Judaism. And that in their liturgies, they've excised this passage. They don't even read this chapter in the synagogue anymore because they have no answer for it. This is not the Messiah they wanted. But before we scoff too quickly, we should remember that though the Father sent the servant out of love, we compound guilt upon guilt. He is despised and rejected by men. 
what Rembrandt's The Raising of the Cross painting lacks in historical accuracy, he somewhat makes up for with a degree of theological accuracy. If you've ever seen the painting, it has one famous detail. He puts himself in it, the painter, at the foot of the cross. He's in the middle of the scene because he had learned from his Dutch Reformed upbringing that he was, like all of us, guilty. That he too was there at the cross. Jesus was a man of sorrows. They were not his sorrows. They were ours. Ours that he took upon himself. That's verses 4 through 6. The servant was stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The smiting was his, even though the guilt was Ours, look at how Isaiah emphasizes it. Verse 4, our griefs, our sorrows. Verse 5, our transgressions, our iniquities. Kids, the word transgressions is kind of like the word trespass. It's about the crossing of a line, going somewhere you're not supposed to go. We transgress when we go beyond the boundaries that God has established for us. It's the sin of what we do. Iniquity is a kind of opposite of integrity. It's a crooked stick rather than a straight one. It describes how in our nature we are not just rather than just. Isaiah uses both of those words here, transgressions and iniquities, because Jesus was pierced for our sinful nature's And our sinful choices. All like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was smitten. He was crushed for our guilt. And how he responded is for me the most remarkable aspect of the entire thing. Wearsby calls the fourth stanza, verses 7 through 9, the silent servant. He was silent in his oppression and affliction. Verse 7, would you have suffered that farce of a trial without objection? Would you have accepted the death sentence without protest? been raised up on the cross without complaint. He was innocent, yet he was silent, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Not out of ignorance, Jesus knew what was happening. And not out of impotence, he was not too weak to stop it. He could have called down the angels from heaven. That's why the cross is not a display of his weakness, but of his strength. For Jesus, things were not out of control. They were the purposeful will of his Father. It's the same strength by which Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. To go two miles instead of one and give our cloak and our tunic as well. It's no sign of weakness 
to be abused for the sake of the gospel. It is a sign and a manifestation of divine strength. Blessed are you when they persecute you for my sake. Jesus knew there was a price that must be paid. The guilt would not go away on its own. No medicine of our own making would suffice. That is objectively true because we are guilty. And it's also our experience. It's why in all times and places, people aware and unaware are calling out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Jesus' answer was to silently go to the cross and to make his grave with the wicked. No one else could deliver us. The trial, the cross, the blood, the grave, without them all, we would never be free. His blood flowed for our Guilt, And because his blood flowed, we can finally be rid of it. We can finally be clean. We can finally be delivered. Most of us in this room have been Christians for a long time. And I hope that when we hear that good news, that gospel proclamation... Our familiarity with it has not caused us to hear it in a theoretical or an impersonal way. Brothers and sisters, this is not just guilt in the abstract. This is my guilt. This is your guilt. Another pastor put it beautifully. His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of the cross. But it doesn't lie there in waste and loss, it flows out toward us, guilty, sad, us. His blood flows out toward a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. His blood washes her shame clean off her. And that shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus and is no longer her burden to bear. His blood flows out toward a man held in bondage to lust. He discovered too late that there is no comfort there, only emptiness and self-hatred. But the blood of Jesus flows out to that man, cleanses him entirely, and takes that painful wrong back to the cross where Jesus suffers for it as his wrong, freeing that man forever. What is your guilt? This afternoon, maybe you should write another verse to that poem. That's your guilt. That the blood of the cross comes and takes from you and puts upon him so that it is never yours to bear again. Christians, this is not theoretical. This is not abstract and far off. He delivered us from this body of death. 
by his death, we have life. That's why the song does not end with death. Verses 10 to 12, the last stanza are about his vindication. The servant is satisfied. His death was not an accident. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the same Lord who made his soul an offering for our guilt would also divide with him a portion among the many. God is fully satisfied in the redemption Jesus accomplished for us. And the son's obedience satisfied the father's wrath. And the son himself is satisfied to do the father's will. By his obedience unto death, the will of the Lord prospered in the servant's hand. That's what that means. It was useful. Following that anguish is the satisfaction of obedience and the joy of redemption. He made many to be accounted righteous, and now he and we share in the spoils of victory. Death has been defeated. Our great enemy subdued. The guilt has been atoned for. We have been made clean. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the guilt that we could never deal with on our own, no matter how we tried, was dealt with by God himself. The unanswerable question, how can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God, received not just God's answer, but his action. And when we go out there, back out there, to a world of dying people, burdened every day by their shame, every day washing their hands to try and get out that spot of guilt, Will you tell them? Every day, many you know are crying out inside, who will deliver me? Weighed down by the guilt they can't remove, disgusted by the filth and shame they've brought with them from the past. They've tried all kinds of things, trying desperately to find the medicine that will finally heal. And some out there are telling them that their guilt isn't real. Just pretend you don't feel it. Your true self is fine. Just lower the standards, invoke the platitudes, and scream into the void, I'm okay and you're okay. But deep down they know. Pretending there's not a problem will not heal you. And then many others... Many others that have the word church on their sign offer them a medicine of self-righteous works. The answer is to feel really bad about what you've done. Be sincere. Fast for 40 days. 
Pile up good deeds and large donations and great intentions. Go to the right kind of church. Read the right kind of books. Abstain from the right kinds of sin. It just goes to show even good things cannot deliver us from the body of death. There's not enough of them and not enough time to deal with the guilt that we have. And what I'm asking of us, Covenant of Grace, is to be the counterpoint to those voices. All we should do, says one teacher, all we can do is bow before Christ in our need. The answer must be that simple or else we're thrown back into the impossible task of taking care of our own guilt. Lady Macbeth was right. She could not wash her hands clean. The right answer to who will deliver me is never me. It's the servant who acted wisely. He did the will of God for us. It's the one who was stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The one who was pierced for our transgressions. He will deliver us. He will deliver us from the guilt of our rebellion, our anger, our excuse making, our pride, our self-justification. The one that we despised. Yes, the one that we rejected. He will deliver us. And to human reckoning, it makes no sense. It's not what we would have done. It's not how we would have done it. It is a mystery of God. But haven't we tried all of our ways already? Look at the world around us. What ridiculous thing will they try next to wash this guilt from their hands? How extreme will they go to be done with this guilt and this shame? They've tried everything else, and the guilt remains. So as they cry out from the depths of despair, as they cry out for deliverance, will you tell them God's answer? Behold, my servant.